On this episode of the Culture Pop Podcast, two-time Tony winner Christine Ebersole joins us to talk about her career and her sitcom, Bob Hart's Abishola on CBS, plus my fight with COVID and Alicia Silverstone with some unusual parenting decisions. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or at stevemason.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob Imrani. Accident or injury, call Jacob Imrani, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinsky. Sue, it's Saturday morning, September the 17th, and this is the first talking I've done since I got COVID. I was so sad to hear that. So what What? How, how'd you, how do you think you got it? Well, a week ago Thursday was the Rams opener at mm-hmm. uh, SoFi Stadium. It was very warm in there. Here's what people don't realize. So... It's an open stadium. You've been there. Yep. So it's open on the sides, but there's a there's a roof or a lid on it. Mm-hmm. And it's actually about seven, eight, nine degrees warmer inside the stadium than it is outside the stadium, which means last Thursday night when we had that super heat wave, um, it was really warm in there. And I feel like I was in a big Petri dish. And I think that's where I got. I mean, me and 70,000 of my closest friends get together for a game. I have a feeling that's probably where I got it. Right. And Juan didn't get it. Juan did get it. Oh, he did. He was at the tail end. He's got it now. Yeah. So, and, and I'll tell you what, what, the weird thing about COVID is it was easier than I thought it was going to be and worse than I thought it was going to be. Both. How is that possible? Okay. So, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be because I have all those images of the early days of the pandemic and like living in terror and fear of getting COVID and all that stuff. So it was scary when I saw the little line come up that said, you know, you're positive. At the same time, it, it kind of sucked because it, the symptoms are terrible. I coughed the entire week. I was in bed the entire week. I was completely beat. It, I mean, it's not to be messed with. I said all along, I'll oh, just get it and get it over with, which probably we're all going to get it sooner or later. But it mm-hmm. was it was rougher than I thought it was going to be. And did you have a fever? Oh, yeah. I had a fever. I had coughing. I had uh, I, I was taking I didn't take the Paxlovid. You know, they've got that pill that you can take once you start mm-hmm. showing. Didn't take it because they said it. Um, it had an interaction with one of my uh, psych meds, and I'd much rather be sick than crazy. Well, you you were sick and crazy. I just, <laughs> Correct. I was. I just. I, I just. I just want to call your attention to that. <laughs> I was both. You're now. You haven't had it. I have not. Which is amazing to me. I know because Tom had it. And you're out there. You're like. You're like living in it, right? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, um, I'm still very careful. If I go into a store, I I wear a mask. Oh, do you? Yes. 
Um, I don't go in any store without a mask. I don't even care if the doors are open. I wear a mask. Wow. Um, but um, I've been in restaurants where I don't wear a mask. Well, where you you walk by the hostess stand and you know you've got the mask on, then you sit down and you meet. No, no, take no. It off. I I go in when I go into a restaurant. I'm not wearing a mask. Oh, so, you, you don't know. even wear it past the host stand or anything no, like that. No, I mean I sat at a bar. You know, there was only a couple of people um, at the bar, but you know, no one was wearing a mask. And then we went. It was kind of like this cavernous um, restaurant. So you're sitting, kind of. Um, it's very it's very tight. You know, mm-hmm. so um, you feel like, oh, my God. I mean, if anybody is sick here, everybody's going to get sick. But right. No, 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 none of us. I mean, there were four of us. And, That's great. So I've been just lucky. So, yeah, I, w- you know, the only thing I worry about since we're it's a podcast and I could talk about stuff. Um, the only thing I worry about is my mom and not stepdad Leo. Because yeah. they're 80 and 81 years old. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you worry. I mean, they've had their shots and all that stuff. And thank God I had my shots. So I didn't, you know, get have to go to the hospital or anything like that. But I do worry about them because my mom's going to work every day at a school. Yeah. She's the and office she, lady at the school. Does she wear a mask there? She does wear a mask. She okay. does wear a mask. Okay. Uh, but they okay. get together with dinner for dinner with like 20 friends every Wednesday night. I'm like, right. we have just been really, really lucky. Better me getting it than than one of them. Sure. And now there's a, a fourth shot. Yeah. The four, uh, no, the fifth shot. Oh, it's the fifth shot. Because I think Kathy Ladman got the last of of what number we're at. Because it um, was two, then one, then one, and now they've added a one. Okay. So how many have you had? I guess I've had four then. Yeah, I've had four. I've had four. I'll I go get what, my fifth next month. I guess what I, what I would be concerned about, because I, I, I'm not concerned that um, I can die if I get it because I feel like I'm so boosted up and I just yeah. don't, 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 you don't, you're not really hearing that much about people being that sick from it. Yes. Um, my main concern would be the long-term effects of getting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, thanks for bringing that up. Well, I don't, I, but, but, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know how, how intense it is these days. I mean, I do hear of people that say, oh God, you know, the brain cloud and, you know, stuff like that. I don't know how intense, um, you know, uh, long-standing issues are, right. with it, you know? Well, I mean, I live with the brain cloud, so it's okay. Okay. There you go. No, no, there's a cloud of cannabis around me. Oh, I see. Oh, <laughs> well, well I have it. Well, I have that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but well, I'm I'm relieved that the uh, the worst of it. So I get to go back on the air on Monday. Uh, I get to go back into the studio. They think on Wednesday. I tested out last night. I had my first negative test. So the Good. deal is, you've got to have five days after your first negative test in order to go back to work at ESPN. So I should be able to go back next Wednesday, which will be great. Cool. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. Yeah. Thank you. So we've got, we got a cool guest coming up, but you, you had something. What do you got? I, Christine Ebersole's. I'm such a huge fan. Oh, me too. She's so great. Um, so I don't know if you read about this. Um, Alyssa uh, Silverstone, have you heard about how she is? Alicia with- Silverstone, right? A- Alicia, Alicia. Yeah. Um, have you heard about um, years ago um, she was criticized for she had a, a baby and I guess the, the kid was like 11 months old and she actually would chew the food and then feed him like like a bird. So she'd baby burn him. 
baby bird him. Okay. <laughs> That's a new term <laughs> to baby bird him. She baby birded him. Um, and now, uh, it's, uh, she came out, she was on someone's podcast talking about how her, her son is 11 now mm-hmm. and she sleeps in the bed with him. He sleeps. No, in the bed. no, I don't think that's right. That's yeah. not, that's not developmentally correct. I mean, I'm not a dad and I don't know anything about, but it doesn't seem like, you know, by the time you're a teenager, I think you should probably be out of mom's bed. Yeah. Yeah. So she's bed sharing and I, I, I don't want, I, I don't want to get this wrong. But, but is she know. still baby birding him at this age? Um, or did no the baby t- birding stop? I think the baby birding stopped. Yes. Um, but then she replaced it with sleeping with him. Yeah. That's odd. Which, so I, I mean, I, I just don't, I, I, I mean, it's now that it's public that she's doing this. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, if, if, if like child services found out that maybe someone else was doing this and they weren't a celebrity, would they like immediately go over there and say, uh, this is totally unacceptable. You can't sleep with your adolescent child. Well, here's the thing. There is nothing, certainly nothing illegal and not, not really anything immoral about it. I mean, you could say it's not good for the kid, but I don't think this is like child endangerment or something sleeping with mom, but it's just weird. If I'm 13 years old, I'm sleeping with mom. The kids at home now know because they read an article in Us Magazine or whatever it is that I'm sleeping with my mom uh, in the same bed. Now it's just weird. And I can't imagine that he's not getting shit for this when he goes to school. Absolutely. Especially now. Yeah. And I'm thinking of like, she's, she's not with the father anymore. Uh, I mean, I just, you know, (laughs) I was thinking like, all right, so, okay. The dog is on my bed. Yes. Yes. My dog is 15 and a half. Yes. Yeah. Right. So that's ever an age. I don't think there's ever an age where you say your dog's too old (laughs) to be in the bed with you. (laughs) Right. Right. But if I were not in a relationship, yeah, and then I started a relationship, mm-hmm. and I had an eleven-year-old child. Yes, would you say like, "I'm sorry, the kid has to stay in the bed. The kid yes. has to stay in the bed." Yes. Now I'm not. You know what? Is it Doctor Spock or somebody who used to write books about raising kids? Who was that, Doctor Doctor Spock? Is it Doctor Spock? Yes. He would say this is bad. Right. Right. He would say this is not good for the kid. It's not dangerous for the kid. It's just it's weird. And and I think probably bad for his regular development as a. An adult. Right. Yeah. I mean, I and, and I, I don't know who it was. I don't know if it was a celebrity or just some civilian, but there was a story years ago about a woman who was breastfeeding her child. And he was, I think, and I didn't even know this was possible. Right. I think he was six years old. No, stop it. No, I'm serious. And she was still breastfeeding him. And it's like, how, where do you think that, where in this world do you think that that's okay? Yeah, that's odd. That's very odd. Yeah. So that's some crazy, craziness. I I have a confession to make though. Oh no. Yeah. I... (laughs) Oh, I'm scared. Oh, God, no. <laughs> so <anything>. scared. <laughs> I baby bird my dogs all the time. You do? Yeah. So I will, like if I'm eating, <clears throat> excuse me, something like mm-hmm. uh, steak. So I don't want to give them a piece of steak because they're mm-hmm. going to chew it and chew it. Chew. So I'll chew it up for them and then baby bird them. 
Wow. Does that seem weird? I guess it's a dog. It just doesn't seem as weird if it's a dog. You know, you know what I've done? I, I, I have, it's, 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 it's a modified uh, baby bird. <laughs> I've actually had, I, I would have food in my mouth yeah, and then I would lean in and the dog would take the food from my mouth. Oh no, like, that's fucked up. It's, it's like sticking out of my mouth. <laughs> no, that's, that's messed up. Oh, really? That's more messed up than baby birding your dog? Yeah, that's really messed up. The dog is eating out of your mouth? Not out of my mouth. Like, I'll, it'll be sticking out. Like, if I have, like, um, like, a, a, like a little piece of chicken or something. Who are you, like, something. Lady in the Tramp? You've got, like, a, like a piece of spaghetti and you guys... <laughs> No, no, no. It's, 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 well, he just grabs it. He just grabs yeah. it out of my mouth. Oh, good but, for him. But, you know, years ago, I went to Bali and I went to a, um, to, uh, the monkey jungle. Mm hmm. And we got, we got bananas and I had a banana, you know, sticking out of my mouth and I would go lean in towards one of the monkeys and they would take it from me. What kind of monkey was it? You know, did like, it have a light face or a dark face? Light face. Light face. Was it, uh, so it sounds like it was a capuchin. Oh, I, I, they can be mean. They can they can be mean little. Well, buggers. they say that a lot of monkeys are mean, you know. But these these guys, um, I think they're so domestic because they're around so many people. And people feed them and, and all that stuff. People feed them, and you know they'll come on your shoulder, and you know. Um, but I, I had no fear at all, you know. Yeah, maybe, I, maybe it was stupid, but I. When we go to Costa fun. Rica, there are two kinds of monkeys. There's uh, the howler monkeys, which have a dark face, and mm -hmm. then there are the capuchin monkeys uh, that have a light face. And the capuchin monkeys are mean as hell. Hmm. the The howler monkeys they crawl through trees and eat flowers. They're like the sweetest, uh, sweetest animal in the world. Then these capuchins come up, and they're like in a gang. Like I got a. Uh, an Instagram video where this, this one capuchin monkey has his arm around another one. He's like, yeah, we're here to get you. <laughs> so you got to watch the, the capuchin monkeys, but I'm glad you had a good experience on monkey Island or wherever you went. <laughs> my brother, my brother just got back from Panama. He went to something called monkey Island. I would imagine there, there's probably monkey islands, other places. Sound like yeah, yeah. It's one. just, it's like, it's, it's like a, it's like a monkey jungle jungle, you know, where yeah. it's just uh open to, you know for anybody it's like a it's like a park basically yeah nice where nice. they hang so yeah. anyway all right so our guest and i'm such a huge fan our guest today is a two-time tony winner including for her amazing performance in gray gardens she has starred in films like tootsie amadeus three men and a baby the wolf of wall street and licorice pizza and her latest project is bob hart's abishola season four has just premiered on cbs christine ebersole joins us christine thank you so much for doing this thanks for having me so you've got such an amazing career. Like I, I got to see you in Grey Gardens. Um, and I oh, just, you did? I want to I talk to you about it. But I want to start with Bob Hart's Abishola. Uh, you play uh, Bob's mother, Dottie. The show emphasizes, mm -hmm. you know, inclusion and appreciation for immigrants and the modern American family. Is that kind of what, what draws you to the show? Is that the magic of the show? Well, for me, the magic of the show is are the players. You know, it's just, it is such an amazing group of people, genuine, genuinely funny, and uh, it's really like a family, you know. So, all that other stuff, um, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not really what 
it's not really the subject matter. It's just the fact that we're all there and we get to create this amazing show. Yeah. You know, we talk to a, a ton of actors and I, I always ask, you know, that kind of that similar question, what attracts you to a show? You know, yeah. is it the writing? Is it the director? Is it uh, the location? Is it the, you know, the actors maybe that you have worked with? And this show is cast so wonderfully. It's amazing. It's, it's just amazing. And, and not, and not an easy show to cast. No, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how they do it. It's, but, you know, it all seemed to come together. It was amazing. But, you know, I mean, I would say the first attraction that got me to the show was getting hired. That makes <laughs> yeah. a difference. Yeah. You know, I was so blessed to be hired in that show. I mean, at my age, you know, it's just it's always just everything's a wonderment, you know. So you're working with you're working with Chuck Lorre, who's the king, the king of the sitcom, you know, two and a half men and the Big Bang Theory, all that stuff. What's he like to work with? And, and what's what's his secret? I don't know. I don't He really has that Midas touch, doesn't he? Everything he touches turns to gold. It's just crazy. You know, he just really knows what's funny. He has his finger on the pulse of what's going on in the world. And he just puts it all together. And and he also, um, I don't know Chuck, but I know a lot of people that have worked with him. I worked with Eddie Gordetsky for for a couple of years mm -hmm. on a show. And I'm I'm good friends with Eddie. And I know like an Al Higgins. And yes. he seems to uh to continue to use the same writers and producers show to show. So I think, you know, the fact that they've they've gone through all these series together for so many years. They totally, totally have it down. Well, one thing that I wanted to ask you. So six episodes into the first season, your character suffers a stroke, right? <laughs> how far in advance did you know that was going to happen? And how, how, how did you manage, uh, playing, portraying a character that had a stroke and keeping the integrity of somebody having a stroke while maintaining the comedy? Well, it's funny because, uh, you know, the second show of the first season, I got to sing. You know, I got to sing to my husband's ashes. Um, and so Chuck came to me after that, shortly after that, and said, you know, I want to talk to you because we're going to do something that's going to really kind of make the show Dottie-centric and bring all these elements together. And he says, we don't have time to talk about it now, but, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it soon, you know. So I went home and I just got to imagine, you know, like, wonder what that's going to be. Like, what am I going to be doing, you know? And I thought, I know, I know what's going to happen. He's going to make me a cabaret singer. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to get the false eyelashes and, you know, the kind of soft lens, the Vaseline on the lens and the glittery gowns. And, you know, it's going to all be there. And that's what it's going to be. <laughs> so I had myself all hyped up for that. Oh, my gosh, this is going to be so great. And then he says, well, your character is going to have a stroke. <laughs> Not what I expected, you know. But I mean, in terms of, um, you know, my husband uh, of 34 years, uh, the two years, less than two years into our marriage, he was diagnosed with an acoustic neuroma. 
which was a tumor in his inner ear pressing against his brain. He had seven hours surgery and he was a drummer. And that's how we met. Um, he did the music for a TV show that I was uh, doing. And, and we were at, at the Paramount lot together. And uh, so he had seven hours surgery and it basically, they had to go in through his skull and uh, remove this tumor because it was, it was in the inner innermost part of his ear, but they couldn't, it was too large to extract it from the ear. So they had to go into the brain I mean, they had to go into the skull and extract it. And Mm. what happened was as a result of that was that the nerves were striated. And so he became paralyzed. Um, He, they striated the nerves so that he, half of his body became paralyzed. Mm. He couldn't, you know, he couldn't close his eye. He couldn't pucker. He couldn't smile. It was like, ah, and uh, the whole left side of his body was he had to learn how to walk all over again. It was crazy. Um, and so I think that, you know, when you're asking the question about that, that was um, a firsthand experience where I was like in the trenches with him uh, and what he was enduring, what he was going through and what he was trying to come out of and come back from. And um, so I think that's how, you know, it gave me so much respect for him in terms of just what he was asked to endure and, and it totally ended his career. I mean, he, he couldn't, he couldn't drum anymore because the signals were not getting, they had striated the nerves, you know, to get the tumor out. And so he had, he couldn't, the signal that would come from his brain to, to, to hit the drums was delayed. So Mm. every, he said he felt like everything was going through like a wet blanket. So it's just, you know, it's all those kind of things that all those, all those things that were torn apart, you know, and kind of had to be rebuilt back together and uh, with a newness of, well, who am I? What am, what am I? What am I? (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. when you're used to something and you don't, you take something for granted like that and all of a sudden it's taken away from you. Um. That's big. Wow. So you wrestled with some of these kind of real issues with your husband that helped yeah. to, to flesh out this performance and this moment for this character, right? Well, I had something that I could relate it to, you know, just immediately. You know, what that, you know, I was, obviously I wasn't him, but I was right there. You know, what, what, must, be, what must it be like to be inside of that experience? Right. And, and how did it feel like to play this kind of, I mean, it's, it, there's a poignancy about it because you had a stroke and your children are concerned, but, but then you're playing it for, cause you're in a sitcom. So yeah, was that challenging? Um, not really, because I, I think the honesty of it can be either poignant or funny or whatever it is. So it, it's really just sort of being honest about it. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't ever like standing apart from it and commenting on it and editorializing it. Cause that's when you're sunk, you know? So I, as, as long as I could just be in it and be honest with it and truthful with it and truthful about uh, my relationship to it, you know, that because I know that with my husband, he he there was so much frustration because and and rage because um it wasn't 
he wasn't getting benefits from what what his brain was telling him to do. His body wasn't responding. Hmm. Right, right, right. And that's got to be unbelievably frustrating. Yeah, it has well, to be. I, I want to ask you one other question. Did, did Chuck know that your husband had had a stroke before he talked about this storyline? I don't think so. Oh, interesting. Okay. I don't think hmm. so. No. So uh, I lived in New York and uh, used to love going to uh, Don't Tell Mama and uh, the duplex downtown. And I love great cabaret. And you you started when you were 19, I think. You were working with uh, Mark Shaman on your no, first- No, Mark Shaman was 19. Oh, Mark Shaman was 19. Mark Shaman was 19 when we did the show together, uh, did our first club act together in New York. But I, I was probably uh, 20 when I did started doing nightclub work in New York when I was attending the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And then it was later when I was doing um, Camelot. That was in 1980. So I was, I think, uh, 27 then. So could you always sing? Were you, you, were you born a good vocalist? Well, you know, it's interesting because my father, who, was, who loved... Um, he loved tape recorders and he loved like taping stuff. You know, we had the reel to reel back then when I was little. <laughs> and uh, there was something that he gave me um, in a cassette tape. He had converted from reel to reel to a cassette tape. And it was uh, Christmas Eve, 1956. And, uh, you know, my dad's kind of like, like Edward R. Murrow, you know, it's Christmas Eve, 1956, <laughs> and uh, mother's at the piano playing Christmas carols, and the children are singing, and Pop is about to join them, you know? So then my mother's, like, playing that piano, and uh, all the kids are going, you know, singing, and my mom and mother says, you know, let Christy sing the chorus, just Christy. They're, we're singing Jingle Bells, right? Let Christy sing the chorus, just Christy. And my brother goes, sing! And so I sang, I'm three years old, three. Wow. I sang Jingle Bells, and it's perfectly on pitch. Wow. So that's a gift from God. And <laughs> it's nothing that you, you know, it's not, I didn't come up with it. God gave it to me. So that's hmm. really the story behind that. What, what was the first Broadway show you saw? I think it was Gypsy with Angela Lansbury. Wow. And Mary Louise Wilson playing Tessie Tura, who ended up, you know, we ended up working together in, in Grey Gardens. Yep, yeah. Mother, mother darling. Yeah. So yeah. I I got to see uh, Grey Gardens and uh, it is such, it was such an amazing experience. You are, you were just spectacular. Um, Thank you. And of course, won the Tony Award. I, when you set out on that project, because you were with that project from, its origins, right? From Yeah, from its inception. It, we were at the Sundance, um, which, which had a facility down in Florida, which was, we went to workshop it. It yeah. was in 2004, I think it was. Yeah, 2004. And did you see a show there? Did it, did, did it feel like there was a show there? Because it's really... It's it's unusual material. I mean, I, I I love the original documentary and all that stuff. But did you see a show right away, or did it take time to sort of find that? Well, when we did the workshop, they didn't even have Act Two mm. put together. So that kind of was uh, it was a two week workshop, and um, they had Act One pretty much, 
but then act two, you know, they didn't have all the songs written and it was just kind of a rough sketch. And, um, and act two was where I'm little Edie, you know? Yep. And, uh, so it just all kind of, you know, grew and got shaped and got put together. It was kind of amazing. I mean, who, who would have ever thought that, the, you know, watching the documentary was, hey, they'll make a great musical, you know? <laughs> like, what? I don't think so. I'm what? You never, you never considered it. Yeah, who, who had that audacious idea? Who looked at the documentary and said, hey, I'm, I see a musical there? That was Scott Frankel. Wow. Well, yeah, it doesn't always work out that way because I remember, was it Leon Klinghoffer? You remember that show? He was on the Achilles oh, Laurel. He got killed. And then they decided to do a musical about it. And I think it closed the, the same week it opened. So sometimes it doesn't really work. But that story, <laughs> that story about Grey Gardens, I grew up in Long Island. And um, when I was a kid, Newsday, the, the paper of, you know, of Long Island, um, on the front page, it had, you know, Jackie Kennedy Onassis's um, aunt is living in squalor in, uh, in in Long Island. And so I remember reading the story when I was a kid. Ah, that, right. Oh, boy. So when the documentary came out, it was like, oh, my God. I mean, it was like probably 20 minutes from where I lived. Um, so, I mean, playing both roles. I mean, how challenging was that? Yeah. Um, well, I think when it's happening and you're inside of it, you kind of don't think of it from the outside. You just sort of think of it from, from the inside out. <laughs> so it's not as daunting as if you're looking outside going, how am I going to do this? You know, it just sort of, it just sort of comes from within, you know? Hmm. So you were also part of the cast of uh, Saturday Night Live. Right. Um, and you were there. I think Lauren wasn't there at that point. I think it was, right. it was Dick, Dick Ebersole. Dick Ebersole, no relation. Right. Uh, and uh, I'm curious what your original audition was like. What What did you do? Well, do you recall what you did? Yes, I do. I mean, it's <laughs> not, you know. Uh, well, just to be honest, to be honest, um, I didn't really audition for it. Mm. I didn't audition for the show. Uh, Michael O'Donohue, who was a producer on the show, was there. I went into the room. I met I met Dick Ebersole. I met um, Michael O'Donohue. And the reason why Dick Ebersole brought me into the room was because he saw a tape that I did with Tony Randall. Um, I'm forgetting the name of it now, but it was a TV show that he did that Susie Kurtz ended up doing. And I auditioned for it. And, you know, my life was at, at the point that I was auditioning for this. Uh, my life was a little bit falling apart, you know, at the time. And so I think I probably um, infused all of that into the audition because it was a serious audition. I mean, it was a serious moment where you know, my character is pregnant and uh, unmarried and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's just, it's a very difficult kind of scene. And so I remember uh, that I was crying in the audition. I mean, as the character, you mm -hmm. know, but the tears were real because they were coming from a real place from within. And so Dick saw that 
and he felt that that was he was intrigued by that. He he felt that there was um an honesty in that performance, and he wanted to meet me because he also wanted to bring about bring singing into more mm. singing into uh, the show. So I had just come off the road doing Camelot with Richard Burton and Richard Harris. And I was going to take the summer off. Um, And so here I go into this audition. So he basically, um, you know, I, I'm like I say, I met Dick Ebersole. I met Michael O'Donohue and Michael O'Donohue's. We went into um, one of the rooms that, you know, like viewing rooms and, we're watching videos and um, he offered me a, a joint mm-hmm. and I took a puff <laughs> and then, and I got the job. Nice. I, I was so excited. Oh, you thought you got the job because you were high. <laughs> no, I didn't. No, <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was my audition. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I didn't. It wasn't in a traditional sense. Let's yeah. put it that way. And, you know, I'm reluctant to say that because it's not, you know, it's not the best way to report, you know, getting a job. Well, I got high and, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, not character building. By the way, I would do that. really well at that job interview. Yeah, I would me be too. totally good at that job interview. <laughs> you know, well, I, just, sure. I, I just, I, I felt part of the group. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then, um, you know, Michael O'Donoghue, who I loved, you know, who I just loved so much. He's the one that wrote that song, Single Bars and Single Women, that I sang on the show that apparently, according to legend, the phone lit up more than any other time in history. Wow. And that's when Dolly Parton got that song and recorded it. Wow. How cool is that? Yeah. And he wrote this song and it was a serious moment. Yeah. This was not a comedic moment in Saturday Night Live. And that's what Dick wanted to bring. You know, he wanted to bring that to the show. He wanted to bring that to the, you know, to that arena. Yeah. Yeah. You- now, now back then, uh, you know, cause we, we've talked to a lot of people that have um, come through Saturday night live and there was always this kind of like fighting for, you know, sketch time. And w- was it like that then? And, and as far as being one of the cast members, how, how important was it for you to come up with, um, I, I characters for yourself. No, I it, listen. I was a total fish out of water. I mean, can you imagine singing? You know, um, where are the simple joys of maidenhood? And then it's like I'm, I'm all of a sudden Saturday Night Live with Eddie Murphy. It just was correct. It was otherworldly. And I thought, well, I have nothing to offer because I, I'm not a stand-up comedian. I don't do improv. I don't do. You know, it's like hand me a script and I'll you know do it. But I, I didn't know anything about that. So I really felt I didn't have a lot of confidence. Let's put it that way. The only place that I had confidence was in the singing. Yeah. And so Tom Malone, who was the head of the band, the Saturday Night Live band, we would get together and, you know, he would have these bits, you know, these moments like KTEL Records, you know, Middle Age Rock and Jesus in Blue Jeans and, you know, and uh, these commercials where I would sing. So that was the way I felt that I could contribute. But in terms of a script, no, no. The, the, uh, the only way that I felt 
that I could really contribute with confidence was uh, in music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sue will tell you that, um, you know, my, Sue, what are you laughing about? I'm just, I just, I think I know where this is going. (laughs) Sue will tell you that that was my childhood dream was to someday be on Broadway. So, oh, really? Yeah, it really was. It really was. And, you know, I, I mean, uh, people still talk about my performance as Henry Higgins uh, in my fair lady. People <laughs> or you? What do they say? People? Wait, people or you? That was, <laughs> no, it was the talk of the town when I did it. It really was. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what, what did they say? What, did, what were the, some of the reviews? Um, you know, for a, the reviews were like for a 23 year old he really makes 60 look real stuff like that nice that's good yeah yeah no it was good awesome. uh, but i but because normally i would sing for you but i have covid right now so i'm not doing any vocals so <laughs> unfortunately you'll have to live with that <laughs> yeah yeah but henry higgins didn't sing it's true. He talk, did talk, talk sing. You're he right. Talk sing. Talk yeah. singing. Right. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a good, t- that's what the one, like you worked with Richard Burton, uh, yeah. an excellent talk singer. Um, well, talk you singing can, is a lot not going to stop you from that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think she wants to hear it. You want to hear it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Here we go. Damn, 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 damn. I've grown accustomed to her face. She almost makes the day begin. I've grown accustomed to the tune. She whistles night and noon. Her smiles, her frowns, her ups, her downs is second nature to me now. Nice. That's what I got. That's what I got. It's you all still, there. You still yeah. have it, still Steve. Got it. Yeah. Uh, it's so embarrassing. Here I am singing to a two-time Tony winner and <laughs> <laughs> suffering through it. <laughs> Uh, so I want to ask you about a couple, you've made such great movies, uh, on top of everything else. Uh, you did Wolf of Wall Street, which is a super fun movie. Uh, and you worked with Martin Scorsese. I'm curious what it's like on a Martin Scorsese set. It's just all guns firing. Hmm. That's the way he works. You know, it's just, he creates this atmosphere where it's just like anything is possible. He's so great. Yeah. He really is. I mean, he's the kind of guy that if you sat down and talked with him, nobody else in the world, it's it, nobody is that nobody else but you and him hmm. in the world. Wow, that's a gift. He's not like looking over his shoulder to see if there's something more important. You know, it's like literally, it's like let's let's tune in right now. Yeah, that's nice. That's and, nice. And, that's the, and the thing is about that too, you um you just want to be the best you can be for him because that's how great he is as a, just as a actor's director and person. Mm -hmm. When you say someone's an actor's director, what separates him from everybody else or other directors that you've worked with? Well, I, it's his uh, respect and compassion and understanding of what the process is and what actors, uh, you know, bring, you know, to when they say 90% of directing is the choosing the actor, mm-hmm. you know, and that's why, you know, but that's why he's, he's so tuned into that. Um, I mean, just like, uh, look at his movies. <laughs> They're crazy good. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, he doesn't, he never misses it. 
It's because he, there's a, con- a connection and a communication and like I say, and a respect for the actor and the process and, you know, what they bring to it and what the director brings to you. I mean, it's just this, you know, communication that he has just intrinsically. So I want to ask you about Paul Thomas Anderson because you did uh, Licorice Pizza. And, you know, he is my favorite writer-director there is. He's, he's awesome. Licorice Pizza. I mean, I. That it's just, it, it's criminal that at this point, he's not been recognized with an Academy Award for something that he's done. He's got nominations and stuff. But, I mean, he is he is a treasure. He is a legend. What's, what's he like on the set? Is he an actor's director? Yes, totally. Yeah. He's amazing. Um. And it's so funny because he he really gets the job done too. Even if uh, you have reservations about something, he'll figure out a way to get you to deliver the goods that he needs. Hmm. Um, and when I was doing, when I was doing, and, and also what's on the page is not, he's expecting, he gives you, um, the clearance and the confidence to bring to, to not be intimidated by, you know, him or anything that's going on around you that you can bring to the stage or what the page or whatever the, to the screen. Yes. What, um, what's not on the page. And so like when, you know, the whole thing with, with this breakdown that, that Lucy Doolittle has in the, he just was saying, you know, kind of giving me pointers, but just like, in other words, just say, you can say this, but just go, go for it. So I just like went crazy and he's like, okay, just keep going, keep going. Don't, don't let me, I won't stop. I'm not going to say a thing. I'm not going to say a thing. So he would just, he was there to just encourage you. Or if there was some like, if he wanted to move in a certain direction, then he would just point you in that, you know? Right. And uh, like give you, um, you know, the, give you the leeway and the bandwidth to, uh, to bring to it what you know. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He is so good. He is so good. He really is. He He really is. And it's always a sense of fun too. You know, because we we shot that it was during the height of COVID. It was like September 2020. Wow. And um, so he hired a lot of his neighbors to do like extra parts <laughs> and like to be background and stuff like that because he just wanted to keep it, you know, close family kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, and you know, it just was always a sense of fun. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the result is like my favorite movie of last year. It's such a, it's such a fun, fun movie. So much fun. So much fun. So uh, last thing you, obviously you've got a hit sitcom with Bob Hart's uh, Abishola, a successful Broadway film career, all that stuff. I'm assuming you got into the point in life where you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm okay. I'm definitely going to keep working. Uh, given all that, what do you aspire to? Well, I'd like to. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just feel like as long as I can stay open to what um, opportunities uh, are presented to me, 
you know, I have this album that's coming out some September 30th. Oh, well, where, why haven't we talked about that? I did not know that. Yeah, I have an album coming out on September 30th with Club 44 Records. And um, it's called After the Ball. And it's about children growing up and parents growing older and uh, how, how we keep going. Are they original songs or are they? Uh... No, they're not original songs, but the story is very uh, personal. It's a very personal story. So I feel like the songs really have a very strong narrative in terms of uh, how it, how it, how this experience of, of uh, empty nesting has uh, hmm. affected me and hmm. family, you know? Well, September the 30th, I will be the first to download that on uh, iTunes. I can't wait and to hear Spotify it. It's called Spotify and all those different places. Yeah. Yes. It's called After the Ball. It sounds like a great, great subject for a musical. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess it could be. Sure. Sure. <laughs> well, listen, Christine, it is a, it's really a pleasure to get you on the show. Uh, you oh. are a delightful human. Thank oh, you thank for coming you so on. Much. Thanks for having me. And listen, don't, don't put that Henry Higgins thing aside because now you're perfect to play it. I'm at the right age now. Exactly. Yeah. I've grown into the role. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your encouragement. That means a lot. <laughs> all right. I mean it. <laughs> Thank you, Christine. All right. All the best. And there you have it. There is Christine Ebersol, who uh, is a, is just a delight. <laughs> she created a monster. <laughs> Oh boy, don't she give it up. She encouraged me. She actually said, don't give it up. I mean it. Yeah, I mean it. She said, run with that a little I bit. I wonder if she smoked pot before the interview. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> All the best interviews involve a joint. <laughs> you know, I, I'll tell the story. The general manager of uh, the station that we went to work to in work at in New York, one of the first things we did together was smoke a joint. Did you know that? No. Yeah. Me and wow. Scott Herman. Oh, wow. I had no yeah. idea. Yeah, no, Scott could party. Wow. How come I wasn't invited <laughs> to some of those? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why you missed out wow. on, the, uh, on the party. Hmm. I was not going to sing for Christine. I know you weren't. But she she dragged it. She just dragged it right out of me. She wanted you to do it. She I had uh, no choice. Well, it, it turned out with uh, a huge compliment and... Uh, you maybe can use her as a reference. Yeah, let me tell you something. <laughs> Do you realize, so years ago, I got accepted to Yale Drama School and it mm -hmm. didn't go. It was really expensive. You're allowed to go to Yale Drama School at any age. So in the back of my head somewhere, I've got this idea that when I finish at ESPN, maybe I'll go to Yale Drama School and start over in a brand new profession. It's, it sounds like you, sh you should be writing a script about this. A, a script about? You Me. going back there now that you what can it, afford my to Rodney do it. Dangerfield back to school? That's not going to be. It's not. <laughs> it's going to be a legit story. I mean, I'm. I'm. I would go and take real classes. And no, I. 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 I actually think it's a great, or it'd be a great documentary. It would be an excellent documentary. That's right. It would be an. How many documentaries do you have now? Five, six. How many are you working on? I'm working on two and then one is a, um, I just kind of started working with somebody on a, uh, like a six part docu, uh, series. Wow. So you've got two documentaries and a six part docu series. How do you have the time? 
I'm not working. Oh, okay. That'll do it. <laughs> that will do it. Uh, all right. Hey, listen, thank you everybody for listening. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or at stevemason.com. Please, Sue, as we always say, leave us a rating and a review. Important. Uh, thanks a lot, Sue. Great seeing you. Actually, for COVID, not too bad. Sounded decent enough. My Absolutely. Henry Higgins was on. Yeah, I think your ha- ha- Henry Higgins actually sounded better. Sounded better. Yeah. Oh, so maybe you need to be been. sick more in order to have a career. Sick. Yes. <laughs> be sick more. Uh, there you have it. We will see you next time on the Culture Pop Podcast. Mm-hmm.